from the National Latino Network for Healthy Families and Communities of Casa de Esperanza, my name is Paula Gomez-Storty, Senior Director of National Training and Technical Assistance, and this is Conversations Over Cafecito. We'll be exploring identity, talking to advocates, parents, nonprofit leaders, trailblazers, policy influencers, and more about they wish they had known before entering their profession or area of expertise. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to Yvette Modestin, founder of Encuentro Diaspora Afro. Welcome everyone and to our conversations over cafecito. I am super excited to have our guest today, Yvette Modestin. Um, I am going to read you her bio so you know how fantastic she is as I do. And let me start by saying that Yvette Modestin is a writer, poet, an activist who was born and raised in Colón, Panama. Miss Modestin was named one of 30 Afro-Latinas you should know. She is founder and executive director of Encuentro Diaspora Afro in Boston, Massachusetts. Ms. Podestin is the diaspora coordinator of the Red Mujeres Afro-Latinoamericanas Afro-Caribeñas y de la Diaspora Internacional Network of Afro-Descendant Women. In 2019, Ms. Modestine received the inaugural Every Woman is an Activist Award from the March Forward, Massachusetts. And in 2020, Ms. Modestine was named one of the women winning globally an International Women's Day by Afrocentric. In 2019, her poetry book, Nubian Butterfly, The Transformation of a Soulful Heart, was released in Panama. She is a board member of the IBW, the Institute of the Black World. Ms. Modestine is an NAARC commissioner, National African American Reparations Commission. She is one of the editors and writers of the book, Women Warriors of the Afro-Latina Diaspora. The book was named one of the top five Latino books in the country for 2013. She is a contributor in the book, The Trayvon Martin in U.S., An American Tragedy, and The Psychological Health of Women of Color, to name a few. In 2020, she was named the International Ambassador for the Reparations by the Rastafari Alliance of Panama. I'm gonna take a deep breath and take all that in. And having said all that, welcome to our cafecitos, Yvette Modestine. It's such a pleasure to have you. And it's wonderful to be here with you, Paula. Um, looking forward to our conversation. It always goes good. We never know where it's gonna go, but it's always good. Let's. Before I start, I want to give thanks to those whose shoulders I stand on, and I want to dedicate my time uh, today with you to my father, um, who recently transitioned and was one of my biggest fans around my advocacy work. Um, And it's rare that uh, we get to acknowledge the men who shaped us in doing this work. Um, We tend to always want hear women. um, But as I wrote in uh, um, the psychology, psychology of health of women of color, 
in my chapter with Dr. Esther Shapiro is that the, I became a feminist in great part to how my father raised me after my mm. mother passed away when I was very young. Um, so I want to give thanks um, to him and it will probably be my constant song um, because I uh, I truly think it's a, a beautiful thing. It's something I pride myself on to be able to say this black woman was shaped by a wonderful black man. Um, you. So I want to start with that. So thanks for inviting me and, and you know, I look forward to our conversation, which is always good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Let's with that, let's go into the topic of our conversation today is centering blackness in the Latino community, an Afro-Latina perspective. And so I think of that centering blackness in the Latino community. And can you talk a little bit about what do you mean or what do you think of uh, when you say, or when you think of centering blackness in the Latino community? I mean, when you think of Latin America, if you know Latin American colonial history, you know that the, the region was colonized by Europeans. Um, you know, uh, we have indigenous um, Native Americans in the region and we have Africans. Um, what I learned in coming to this country um, after being born and celebrated into my blackness since birth and in a community that uh, just embraced it with such love and joy and pride and fearlessness and righteousness um, to then come and be faced with this massive level of rejection of that blackness and that story, that African story that shaped this region, the rejection was incredible. Um, both from non people of African descent and those who are of African descent who were in denial and had carried a level of internal racism that was just jolting to my energy of walking around the world saying I'm black and I'm proud. And I would have people saying, yo no soy negro, yo no soy negro. And I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? Um, so over time, centering blackness as, as simple as it may sound is a massive, deeply groundbreaking, issue within the Latino community who does not center it, um, almost uh, excludes it and push it is, pushes that away with a level of hate and self-hate that is striking to see. So that's, that's so, oh, so, okay, I'm going to edit this part because I'm just like, <laughs> So when I hear you say that there was this rejection of blackness, there was this you experienced rejection, and it also came from Latinos with African ancestry that were rejecting your blackness or your love of blackness and your love of being in your own skin and body and history, right, and community. 
And how did that rejection show up towards you? Oh, I mean, I would have people not acknowledge me. I mean, at all. Like I would have like be talking to folks and they'd be like looking around like, like who's she talking to? Because or speaking to me in English or Spanish meant having to engage with a visual and a tone of someone that was going to trigger everything that they deny. I learned over the years that I am a visual representation in movement, in tone, in how I dress, in how I speak of everything those who are leaning into whiteness within the Latino community, um, both in pigmentation and in roots, I am a trigger to them. Either you're going to be able to tolerate me to a certain extent if you can get past your own self-hate, but if your self-hate is so deeply rooted in how you move through the world, then you can't see me, and which means you can't tolerate me, which means you can't have a conversation with me, which means those are the people that didn't respond to me. Can you explain that phenomenon to our audience of how that happens of this self-hatred, this internalized racism, how does that happen? How does it manifest? How does it work? I don't know how it happens because it's not my story. I What I have seen over the years in doing the work and you know working with young people is how deeply rooted certain countries have whited out their African story even countries such as Santo Domingo and Puerto Rico who have a deeply rooted African story in their history of teaching uh, the history in their countries, they exclude that story. You know, in Santo Domingo, um, you know, in Latin America, we have a cedula. And in Santo Domingo is one of the few countries that black means Indio. So they don't say straight black. It, you have to do a whole process just to put black on your cedula, which a colleague who's an attorney in Santo Domingo went through to put black and not India because, you know, they leave it at Indio and then those of them who they think are black, they may put it. Um, so, Perdón, do you mm-hmm. mean the cedula, your, your ID? Your ID. Your ID, okay. And so, so it shows racial, up in your ID. Yeah, oh. the racial choices in Santo Domingo for your ID, Black is not one of them. I see. You have to go through a special process to even put Black because they associate Black with being Haitian. Um, so that's how historically deep the rejection goes. So to understand the struggle of the Dominican who doesn't self-identify is to understand how they were taught their history. Um, So to understand the, and I use these two communities because they're the two largest communities that I've worked with in, since I've been in the US. Um, To to see an Afro-Puerto Rican deny is to understand the plight of the uh, Puerto Ricans and the poem Y tu abuela donde esta that speaks to the rejection and that however light you came out, you know, let me see what your grandmother looks like. Um, so it's not just uh, 
So the history carried the denial. So then how you're taught that and then what happens in your home, the conversations in your home. For my young people, the conversations with their home that match this denial in their history was, tú no eres negro, eh, quien ese amigo negro que tienes, even if that amigo negro was just as negro as him, or from Honduras, or from Costa Rica, pero era negro. And because they didn't identify as negro, everybody else was the negro. Um, it it's, plays out in the home with, my girls and my boys being told, no traigas a un novio o una novia negra a esta casa. It plays out with- uh, Sorry know, for the folks. Bring, Perdon, uh, the folks, don't bring a- A, a, a black girlfriend, boyfriend, or boyfriend or to this house. Home. Yes. Yeah. And this is still all in the context of those who are not Afro-descendant and those who are. So both were getting that same message at home. And mm -hmm. also, um, you know, the typical story that we all hear, you know, tienes pelo malo, you have bad hair, so we need to straighten it out, we need to blow it out, we need to make it as soft and straight as possible so your blackness doesn't show, to the point that I had young girls not come to school if they didn't go to the hairdresser that weekend to perm know, their hair. blow out, perm their hair or blow out their blow hair. Blow it out. And so that dynamic is real. And as you're saying this, those that exists in Latin America, it exists within the context of the U.S. Is it the same? Are there differences or are they parallel experiences of this anti-Blackness within Latino communities, both in the country of origin and here in the U.S.? I How think it's, it's, any? it's similar. Yeah because anti-blackness is a world concept. <laughs> it's a world concept. It plays out differently in each country based on that country's culture. It plays deeply differently in this country because race is at the core. Racism is at the core of the evolution of the development of the progression of the systemic institutional positioning of this country. So it, it plays itself out in how people see you, how people treat you, how people acknowledge you, how people hire you, how people fire you, um, how people think you're beauty, how people think you're not beauty. I mean, it's so deeply rooted in the system that then for me coming from a system that yes, there was racism, you know, in Panama, um, especially within the context of being born and raised in the American territory of Jim Crow laws. But then you realize how deeply rooted what they brought to Panama was bad, but it was somewhat not as bad as coming here and then oh, having so to deal with it. Like I thought I already knew how to navigate an American space having the English, going up with Americans, going to an American high school, whatever and whatever and whatever. But then you come here and you go, mm, no, white folks are really worse than what I had to face in, in, the, in Panama. You know, they really make laws to exclude you or to shame you, like literally going deeper into that. And then also that helped me go deeper into my own upbringing 
and realizing how deeply rooted uh, that system was to the point of something as simple as the Black community houses, uh, the Black community segregated communities in this canal zone territory, we could not have the same size houses as the white community. And that is actually documented. And so having you're you're then having that experience, you're arriving here in the US and you went to school here, and then you started working here, supporting victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And it was there when working with survivors that you started witnessing and experiencing institutional racism. Can you talk to us about that, how that plays out? And you're muted. I felt it in school, but then when you go outside of this safe confinement to a certain extent, then you're like, holy moly, it's even worse than I thought. Um, I would get hired as a bilingual bicultural advocate really wanting to work in this Black, Latino, uh, cultural, ethnic community that I most uh, felt most comfortable in. And getting hired and then having to speak up on the racism that played itself out and then getting tagged as the Black woman who wasn't really Latina or the Black woman who was more black than she was Latina. Like my Latina card was immediately sort of taken away for speaking up against racism within the Latino community. Like seeing how people would talk about the women that were Latina who were black. Um, and then also sort of then coming into knowing the knowing of the term Afro-Latina. Uh, happened during this time because I didn't, I'm a, I'm a black woman, I'm a black Panamanian, you know, and then realizing that this rejection, this denial that I was seeing in Boston was a national issue that, that Afro-Latinos was facing. And one of my mentors, Marta Moreno Vega, one of the founding leaders of the movement, you know, create, you know, being behind in Miriam Jimenez Roman, creating this term Afro-Latina to say, you know what, within this Latino term that leans into whiteness so much, there's an African story before it. Um, and we need to add the term. Panama, for instance, in never narrating the, the film, Sima Noraje in Panama, Maroons in Panama, there was a period in Panama that it was, uh, was it three to five Africans in Panama? Um, you know, so, we were a territory that was filled with Africans and, and some uh, many free Maroons. Um, so doing the work, not only was I having to defend or speak up for the women and their needs, but also speak up for myself. Um, because of the rejection and the, the denial and the exclusion, you know. Um, one of the things in 
that I've been reflecting on with my father's passing is how in the setting, there was never an opportunity to say, no, I come from educated parents. No, I come from an educated community. The automatic thought was you're, you're from Panama, you're black and you're an immigrant, that means you're poor. And it was interesting to be dealt with that way by folks that were not from where I came, you know, the status, but they automatically were given that because either their lightness um, or the name or whatever. But, you know, I, my father's passing reminded me that I come from, <laughs> you don't bow your head for nobody. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I come from good, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know, mm -hmm. there's no bowing and, and, and that's not, you don't give, you don't, you're not given that opportunity here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had folks asking me in college if I, you know, had roads, you know, or, you know, if we had water, like, I was like, oh my God, is that what you think of Panama? Mm -hmm. And, and it was sort of like, do you not know that the U.S., owns half of the territory that like, there was no understanding of the canal, the American influence. Like I had college professors constantly asking me my freshman year, if I needed them to, although they heard me speaking English very fluently, mm -hmm. they couldn't get past the fact that I was from Panama. So their questions were, do you need help? You know, do you understand this? I was like, I already read that book. Like I had to be like, I already read, you know, like I come from one of the best English teachers ever. And I was like, no, I already read that. I already wrote an essay. Like they could not, they didn't know what to do with me because their understanding of someone black immigrant Panama meant that I didn't have that. The story and the assumption mm -hmm. was different than reality. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were uh, speaking earlier, uh, you mentioned that Afro-Latinidad leans towards whiteness. Can you talk about how Afro-Latinidad potentially can lean towards whiteness? Or I don't think Afro-Latinidad leans towards whiteness. I think Latinidad leans towards whiteness. So then it becomes okay. a contradiction to put the two terms together when there's so much whiteness in the term Latino, to put Afro before it does not help it. Like my experience has been the putting of it together is necessary and it's important, but it didn't make my struggle any easier. Right. No one adjusted their behavior completely when I said I'm an Afro-Latina. They still kept with their rejection of that even with the term, because instead of saying, ah, pero eres Latina y hablas español y ta, 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 it was no, um, do you, can you? Like I had to go through a checklist for, with a lot, you know, with just, and it wasn't direct. It was very indirecta, you know. Like trying to, to qualify. Yes, to, to make sure, you know, one of my poems that's in the book, The Psychological Health of Women of Color, um, and also is in the, my poetry book is, Do You See Me? And I wrote that while attending a Kellogg meeting where they were 
about to kick off their racial equity, which now they recently redid. And Encuentro Diasporafa was one of the organizations that participated in that. And we had gotten some funding, but they had had like a gathering of African-American leaders to talk about it. And they had a, a, a meeting of Latino leaders, Marta, uh, myself, and some other Afro-Latinos were there. And, you know, they had said these, this was clearly a meeting of Latino leaders coming together to talk about this new uh, big proposal that was going to be coming out. And, you know, to get to the, the location, there was another smaller flight. Uh, and these two men behind me, you know, were getting on the flight and me and my usual Afrocentric uh, getup um the they were like in spanish um and i literally out of the rage just sat down and wrote that poem because it's like you don't see me um but i see you you reject me the way you reject your family member someday mm -hmm. you will have to sit before me and i will tell you you hurt me but i forgive you um, and what was interesting in that whole exchange, I was putting my bag away and this other guy was in front of me and I immediately started to speak to him in Spanish. Um, and he looked at me, he goes, oh, I'm not so fluent. I'm trying to learn right now. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you can get away with saying that. And still people would be like, pero eres latino. Exactly. Right, if right, I would right, have right. said that, then the conversation right. would have been done. So you almost like these qualifiers to qualify as Latina mm -hmm, pass mm -hmm. this test. You know, so I hear you. I I I understand. I get it. And at and at the same time, I think that I don't think that we see the word Latina, of course, and, and I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I don't think that everyone sees the word. Latina, Latinidad as whiteness in the context of the U.S., right? It's like qualifying like, okay, Black, white, Latina, somewhere in the middle. But the reality is that African ancestry and Blackness is in our community. Can you exp explain that more of the whiteness of Latina, Latinidad? I mean, the, I mean, I... The US, the world has set up that black is bad and white is good. And it plays itself out in all our communities. And in the Latino communities, no exception. I find it interesting that the Latinos that push back on me in me calling that term white supremacism, and white privilege, um, because they feel that, that those white privilege and white supremacy is only reserved outside of, of communities of color. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no it plays itself out to me uglier than anything in the Latino community um, mm -hmm. because they will be talking to you and whatever and they are waiting to call you yesa negra quienes. Mm -hmm. You know, just last year during the pandemic doing a couple of virtual uh, conversations um, for different spaces, it was interesting to speak up on this and still have folks within the Boston, Massachusetts community of the Dominican, the Puerto Rican community be absolutely appalled when you call out 
the historical truth about their denial. Um, and, and, and I have one of my best friends is Dominican. Um, but she, you know, is speaking from a historical place. It's not some personal attack out of nowhere. It's a reality. And they immediately see you as anti-Dominican. So I have been labeled anti-Dominican. I've been threatened and called all kinds of names because instead of pausing and saying, there's some truth to this, hay una verdad aquí, it's easier to slam me, call me ugly, esa fea, ella quiere que todo mundo diga que son negros. I'm not looking for everybody to say they're black because I know what comes with, what comes with saying you're black comes with a, you know, I read this, I posted this quote by Sonia Sanchez from this article um, that she, she, this interview that she did. And, you know, she said, um, you know, being a part of the, becoming a part of the black arts movement, I went in and I came out with more information and it has formed me. It's not deformed me. It has not it has not malformed me, it has formed me. So the combination of growing up into my blackness and then this rejection that happened in this country that led me to go deeper into my understanding mm. of that blackness has formed me to the point that this is who I am on the world, on the world stage. This is who I am on earth. Um, this absolutely unapologetically black woman. I love that. <laughs> and so what where where do we what what else needs to be happening? What more needs to be happening? Where do we go from here? Um, how do we bring this visibility, these conversations, this reality and centering uh, blackness in the Latino community? What are some things that you recommend us as Latinos we do to center blackness in our communities? I mean, one of the things is to start having the conversation and not waiting for, it's just like when people want to talk about racism and they want the black person to be the one having the conversation with white folks. No, white folks need to have the conversation with white folks. Mm -hmm. Latinos need to have the conversation with themselves and stop using us to bring in the conversation and make it this other conversation versus no, it is the conversation. We're not an other. We are it. We are a thing within. Um, and you, we still get invited to do presentations and training in Latino organizations as if though we're the only ones that can have a conversation on racism and conversation on anti-Blackness within the Latino community. When, when I walk into some of these spaces, all I see is a room full of Black folks. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's rare that I go into a Latino organization over the years and I'm like, oh, todos son blanquitos. No, I'm looking at all shades of blackness right, right before me, you know. Um, so we get so caught up with the name, you know, it's like one of my poems, I said, let's not get caught up with the fact that uh, if you understand the history of the region, there's countries such as Belize, Panama, Costa Rica, where people carry English-speaking names. The vice president of Costa Rica is a colleague, Epsi Campbell Barr, okay? Yeah. Vice president of Costa Rica, una mujer negra afrodescendiente, 
that is of Caribbean descent. If you know Costa Rica, you know that's a reality. Y tú ves a Epsi y ella no, no se le quita que es costarricense. So, last, I mean, I could, again, we, we could talk forever. <laughs> But I, I want to leave these last words to you about, you know, when we look at identity and exploring race, you know, and some, some individuals, that's a process, right, of coming into their Blackness, right? What would you say? to those individuals, those Latinos, Latinas, Latinas, who are exploring that? What would you say to them in their journey? Go, you know, my, my word um, in my deep reflection with my father's transition and now being a motherless and fatherless uh, mm. child in the world, um, is to go back and fetch it, Sankofa. Go back and ask the questions that you probably needed to ask when you were younger, when you were told to brush your hair to the point that your head hurt. Um, ask why that happened. You know, that had a lot to do with that negation. You know, ask why your parents behaved strangely when you brought that really, really good friend home. And you'd been speaking about that really good friend for a while. And then when they finally saw what she looked like, they treated her like this ordinary person off the street. Um, go back and look at why you lost that job or you weren't given that promotion. Um, it may have something to do with the fact that although you may not identify yourself as a Black, Latina, and Afro-descendant, because there's there's two there's the the identity that comes with pigment you know color of skin and then there's the identity that comes with roots with raíces um and if you deny both you know um i'm looking at you like i don't care how light you came out look at your nose look at your ears <laughs> look at your lips <laughs> you know um but you know and then i give thanks to my parents um for bringing me into the world and grounding me in such a loving way in my black identity that I still move in the world and will not give it up. And I'm so glad for that. So glad for this conversation. It has been an absolute pleasure for you sharing your time and your wisdom and all of yourself with us. Thank you so much, Yvette Morris. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> This was fun. Hasta la próxima. Gracias.